want to talk a little more about Puritan preaching before we actually look at an example of Puritan preaching. Um, one of the things we were talking about was the fact that um, Puritans didn't mind long sermons. And then the very next week I preached a long sermon. So that's kind of... Uh, it, I thought that it was by accident, but then I read that Flavel book and I remembered that nothing happens by accident. So, uh, and that includes this, the timing of the New Testament reading this morning. I did not know that was going to be Alan's text for the men's retreat. So just the Lord just, he does this repeatedly where our reading feels extremely relevant to the moment that we're in or our text ends up being very relevant. So uh, praise God that he rules all this world, including... Months in advance, choosing the order of service. But, um, but we talked about the fact that the Puritans didn't mind long sermons. They had a tremendous attention span. Um, also, though, Puritans would listen to multiple sermons a day and multiple sermons a week, right? They didn't just preach on Sundays. Um, you know, we saw this before. I don't know if you remember this at all, but often this was a necessity for them to have preaching during the week because... They would have church services and the Elizabethan, uh, I'll, just, I'll just say church government, the Elizabethan church government was often very uh, fastidious in watching the worship services, especially on Sundays. And they would watch carefully to make sure that they were following the lectionary, that they were following using the book of church order, or the, not the book of church order, they were using the book of common prayer. Uh, and churches where... They were persuaded that they shouldn't do that or shouldn't be forced to do that would oftentimes have preaching outside of the service. So, you know, you don't not not all preaching has to take place on Sundays. You could have preaching during the week and the Puritans would do that. They would have preaching in the early mornings. They would have preaching in the afternoons. They would have preaching. um, They would have Sunday morning and Sunday evening worship. Um, So you'd book in the day. Um, There would be just a ton of preaching and. Part of that is a mark of the education of the ministers that, that were being raised up during that time. The fact that you could preach that much meant that you weren't doing what I do and writing out a manuscript. Uh, oftentimes you would have people in the congregation who were taking notes. And so you might have existing Puritan sermons based not on manuscripts but based on the notes of people who were listening. Uh, John Calvin, I know he's not t- technically a Puritan. Uh, but John Calvin, he would go into the pulpit with his Greek New Testament and he would preach. And it would not be a well-prepared sermon in the sense we think of a well-prepared sermon. But instead, there would be people in the congregation taking notes and sort of like stenographers almost. And so we have these sermons today, not because Calvin wrote them out and saved them for us, but because someone else was doing that. Um, yeah, Joseph. Well, I have one question. Um, like, so do the preachers ever like, I mean, like, Look at like other people's notes and be like, "Oh, I should probably just preach a sermon on this." Or, uh, well, another thing too, I'm just kind of curious about like, did the Puritan preachers ever like memorize their sermons, or did they just have a little bit of like a note person just to? Do I, I couldn't say for sure, but I, I think mostly what you have is extemporaneous preaching, um, but based on a memorized outline. So because they, because they would preach so long, um, you know, having all of that written out by manuscript. Now, there were probably exceptions. Just like today, some preachers go from memory and some go from a manuscript. Some go by a written outline. And I'm sure that, that the Puritans had a lot of variety in how they would do that as well. Because, so. I mean, like, cause, you know, like if, I had to do, uh, if I had ever had to do a sermon by, uh, by memory, I'm like, I would probably fail. Alan, how many people preach, preach a sermon from memory? I don't know. I, I think uh, very few. I think 
days of the Greek orators. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's been demised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, but there would be a large quantity of preaching. The Puritans were very happy to have God's word and feed upon it a lot and frequently. And so um, remember, though, there's, there's a reason why all this is happening, why they have to have these services outside. Because Elizabeth's aim was to have a specifically English style of worship. Their goal was we want to have a worship and it needs to feel explicitly English. And so, you know, kings and queens are, are, are concerned about national identity and structure and unity, uh, even of the liturgy that goes on. And the Puritans didn't care about this at all. The Puritans are not worried about England and whether or not the, the worship feels English. Um, they're more international. They are more indifferent to whether or not England loves or hates what they're doing. They want worship in English, but they're not interested in it having a national or ethnic identity or character to it. Um, they see themselves more as part of an international fellowship. They see themselves uh, hearkening more, more to what's going on on the continent, right? And that's not England. That's, that's the rest of Europe. Um, and so they read Lutheran writers, Italian writers, French writers, Swiss writers, uh, theologians from all these countries, they're happy to draw from them. And, you know, for example, they felt a kinship with the Huguenots in France. We haven't talked about the Huguenots because that's just not part of the story of worship that we're, we're telling. But some of this may have stemmed from their hiatus during the reign of Mary. Remember, the Puritans leave England and they go to the continent. And so when they go to the continent and they go to, for example, to Switzerland for, for shelter – they see the world and they see themselves as part of larger Christendom in a way that a lot of English just didn't see themselves that way. And so nationalism is on the rise in the 16th century and the Puritans are not interested in something that base. They see themselves as being members of a transcendent kingdom. And so you know, if someone comes to them and says, why, why aren't you helping to promote English worship? They say, we need biblical worship. I mean, it's not necessarily the same thing. So they were English, but they were always Christians first. The Puritans were interested in holiness lived out in everyday life. So you see this in their preaching. Um, that's a contrast to what was coming before, right? Remember, the medieval church places this emphasis on the, the monastic life that people implicitly believe the only way to really be devoted to God is if you follow a monastic existence. So for, the, for a medieval person, if you, were to, if you were to say, what does it look like to live a life devoted to God? They would say, well, look at the monastery over there. Right? That's what it looks like to live a life that's devoted to God. And, and then you would say to them, well, is your life devoted to God? And they would probably say, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worker. I'm a, I'm a farmer. Uh, I'm somebody who is perhaps a money changer or something like that. But they're not going to say that their life is devoted to God because they're taught that, that – Call the devo being devoted to God is like a calling. It's like a vocation. And the monks are doing that. And they think that that's what it means to have piety and to be devoted to the Lord. And so that's the model that the, the people are raised with. And when the, Puritans, when the Puritans are on the rise, one of the things they're very concerned with is that people in an ordinary life, in everyday life, as they're working, as they're living their lives day to day, realize that they are important. Um, I think it was Luther whose great contribution was to reverse this. He emphasized holiness could be lived out by common people in everyday life. And the Puritans grabbed hold of this and they said, you can be devoted to God too in your family life, 
in the affairs of your business, in the way that you conduct your business, in the way that you live in your community. It is not just the monks over there who are meant to be holy, but we are meant to be holy and we're meant to live it out all the time in all of our interactions with people. It's not segmented and just like put aside over here. Yeah, Yanka. What would explicitly English worship look like? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at, like, this, for example, the dress of the English clergy in the Anglican church, they had specifically a, a type of garb and priestly gowns that were unique from what was in the rest of Reformation Europe. So they would have, they would have different dress than the rest of, of, you know, look up, if you look up sometime online, look up um, Anglican dress. And you will see surpluses and different outfits that look different than you would see in the rest of Europe. Or, you know, that's just one example. But the clothing, um, I don't think music necessarily was a concern. Although the Puritans really did want to sing without instruments. And the Catholic Church and I think the Anglican Church were very happy to have big instruments and organs in the services. So, What's that? Yeah, the big organ is important. It's a part of, of what it means to be English, right? We're keeping some things from what we had before. Um, so, so there were things that, that English people thought will do. And the Book of Common Prayer, of course, would be the biggest standout. It would be the most obvious thing that English worship is with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, no one else is using this but the English. At least that's the way they would argue. Yeah, Alan. Or, I know about the Well, the, I know that the Dutch had a second, what they called a second Reformation. So you'd have a writer like Wilhelmus Abrockel, who would almost be like a Puritan. Um, and he would resemble that where he would say, we don't just have these doctrines simply so that we have perfection in our and precision in the things we say about God. But Abrockel would say, we learn all of this stuff so that our hearts can be changed. And so that's where like if you read somebody like Abrockel, Second Reformation, uh, Dutch Reformation, you know, he really emphasizes the heart in a way most of us aren't used to. If, we ever, if you ever read a systematic theology, a lot of times it just feels like a systematic theology. And Abrockel is always like, how can this be used for worship? He would frequently do that. Yeah, Benjamin. Was the Anglican, gar- uh, Anglican garments based on the Roman Catholic garments? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know enough to answer that, except to say that it was meant to look different from the Roman Catholic priestly garments, but it was still priestly, right? They still called them priests, which the Puritans objected to very vehemently as well, using that term priest. Um, but also, um, it was meant to look different. So it, it's probably a little bit of both, where you're keeping something so that the minister looks distinct from everybody else, but you're also. Um, wanting to make sure that you, they, everybody knows you're not Roman Catholic from the way you look. So it's both and, I guess. Um, but this was the big thing, though. The Puritans um, were big on application. And here's what would happen when you, whenever you do application in the church. There's always a risk of being charged with something called legalism. 
You can, if, because it's very safe to talk generally about grace. It's very safe to generally talk about, about God and the gospel. But when you start talking about what that looks like in everyday life, then that's where you start, A, stepping on people's toes. Um, it's where you – sometimes application does involve stepping beyond the text in the sense that you're moving into people's lives now and not just saying this happened and this was said. But you're also saying, therefore, we ought to fill in the blank, right? And so when you do that, people would charge with legalism. And that was certainly something that Puritans got charged with. They got charged with legalism. And I can't speak to every instance. There probably were were actual instances of legalism where people fastened weights on people's shoulders greater than than God himself does in the text. Uh, But oftentimes people would be, be innocent of legalism and they'd still get charged with it. Because you still have this problem today. If you tell somebody God's word says something, therefore we should do it, they say, why? You're being a legalist. So it's always a danger. Um, But the Puritans placed a high premium on works, but they were good Protestants in the sense that they understood that didn't earn our justification. That doesn't give you peace with God, but it's supposed to be a response to our union with Christ. So you read the Puritans on justification, and it puts into perspective all the works that they did preach. Um, we are not good so that we may have Christ. We are good because we have Christ, um, which is a very different way of thinking of the gospel. Um, the way the Puritans would preach was they would treat their listeners as Christians who needed to grow and take the Lord seriously. That was how they preached. So. Um, you know, in a modern context, you're going to have a variety of people that you th- are going to think of being in the congregation. You're going to think, well, there, there may be some skeptics in this room, somebody who may not believe at all. You're going to have strugglers in the room. You're going to have some people who think they're Christians and they're not. You're going to have some Christians who, who, uh, people who are not Christians at all and they know it. But you're going to preach in such a way that you hopefully try to, try to throw the net wide and sort of get at everybody. For the Puritans, they're living in a moment where everybody in the room is claiming to be a Christian. And so the kind of preaching that you're going to preach is you're going to preach something that drives them deep. And yes, drives them to see their guilt because everybody thinks it's, it's enough that I am coming. right? It's enough that I'm here and I got baptized and I'm showing up. And the Puritans would oftentimes challenge people with that and say, maybe you're not. You should think about that. You should pray about that. You should consider that. Um, I remember Derek Thomas, one of my professors at school, he would frequently say something like this. Every, pa- every pastor that he knows always feels like it's his duty to make people feel secure. So you're always preaching assurance for everybody. You're always trying to make sure everybody feels saved. You want to make sure everybody uh, feels like they're in the, secure in the kingdom of God. But he said, actually, the minister's job is to do that for the people who are looking to Christ And the challenge is to also help people see that they're not secure if they're not trusting in Jesus. And pressing people to see that they're not really trusting in Jesus can be painful work. And so there are some people who need to think about the fact that they may not be saved. And most ministers don't want to do that. They they just want to be positive. And so instead of saying, look, examine your own heart, ask yourself the question, are you trusting in Jesus? They just want to say, look how great Jesus is. Look how great Jesus is. And never push back, never challenge somebody. And that's something the Puritans did. And it's somehow, for some, that's the reputation that they have, is that they would do this. Um, 
Hughes Old says this is the, the aim that of the Puritans. He says the conversion at which the Puritans aimed was not one from paganism to Christianity, but from an initial faith to a more profound faith. Their evangelical preaching was aimed not so much at justifying faith as at sanctifying faith. So they would preach about the weightiness of the Lord, taking the Lord seriously, not just going through the motions. This is a very consistent theme of the Puritans. It's why if, you're, if, if somebody's a, a mature Christian and, and I want to give them something to read, I'm probably going to give them the Puritans because they're going to get pushed to go deeper. They're not just going to get pushed to keep coasting along um, because all of us need to be challenged to go deeper. Um, there was It was not a, skept, a skeptical culture in England at this time. Now, once the... Once the uh, Enlightenment takes hold in Europe, then there does come a need for that. Um, But the Puritans preached at subjective experiences of the Christian, aiming at the heart. And so um, one thing that that you may get a misunderstanding of is when I talked about the Puritan Golden Age, right, 1560 to 1660 – you might get the impression that, well, that means that everybody loved the Puritans during the Puritan Golden Age. Just so we're very clear, uh, people, the parliament was friendly to the Puritan cause during time, during some of those periods of time. But it was not a paradise for the Puritans. They were still a minority during the Elizabethan years. Um, especially under Elizabeth, they realized there was very little hope for, for further reformed. They were tolerated, but they didn't have real power to change the Church of England. And so because of this, they had a sense of earthly powerlessness. And because of that, Puritan preaching, especially during its apex, was aimed more at the individual heart. We can't change this society or government, right? This is a monarchic society. We can't change the king. But we can aim at the individual heart. We can change people's lives. I can preach to the person in the pew. I can hope that they hear the grace of Christ, right? And... They preached to the heart, and that's why these books still sell today. That's why people still want them. That's why they still download them. That's why people still consume them, because we all still need to have our hearts preached at, don't we? Um, The Puritans also followed Calvin in this. They saw it as a form of worship. They say preaching is a form of worship. They said, look, declaring God's truth is a means of glorifying God, because if you declare true things about God, he's going to be glorified. When you say true things about God, people are going to see who he is and they're going to rejoice in that. And so um, that meant that preaching and the right reception of preaching is a form of worship. I, I wonder if you think of yourself as a sermon listener on, on Sundays, for example, as a worshiper. When you're receiving the word, then you're, you're worshiping, especially when you hear it and you digest it and you, you find something in it. You know? And usually, usually we don't hear everything in a sermon. Um, instead, oftentimes what happens is folks come to me afterwards and they tell me about the thing in the sermon that they needed to hear. Um, just by doing that, by having something you grab hold of, you're worshiping God. Uh, I, you know, we, it's not just singing that's worship. You know, sometimes we think that way, but the whole part of the service, especially listening, uh, is, is a way of worshiping God. The Puritans would reach, preach very slowly through texts and they would use a scholastic-oriented method. Um, Typical exegetical preaching by a Puritan would move through a text and give an overall sense of the passage. Um, uh, And oftentimes they would be able to see the forest and the trees. You know, you can balance all of these things. Look where we are. But oftentimes when the scholastic method, especially if someone was trained in a scholastic method, they would carefully 
study phrases and words and you would sometimes get sermons just based on little tiny phrases in the passage. Um, There are some Puritan sermons that are based on three words and then they would take apart those three words and they would show you all these principles that can be drawn from the three words. And to a modern reader, unless you're doing a sermon prep, that can feel very, very laborious sometimes. And here's what that meant. Sometimes they would preach series in the but they wouldn't preach on a whole book of the bible because it would take too long right i I mentioned to you the guy that preached through the book of job for his whole ministry um you know that guy was doing it all he was like i'm exegetical i'm doing lectio continue i'm preaching through the whole thing and i'm gonna move as slow as i need to um but usually what the puritans would do was they would say i'm gonna do a series on this chapter of a book of the bible um, Thomas Manton has a series of 18 published sermons just on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, he has a book on Isaiah 53. It's just an exposition of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And it's glorious. Um, but he didn't do a commentary on the whole book of Isaiah. He didn't do a ser- sermon series on the whole book of Isaiah. Because even he knew, I'm moving too slow. I can't, I'm not going to make it through the whole book at the rate that I'm going. And so what you get is really rich. Yeah, Yanka. That was Thomas Manton. M-A-N-T-O-N. Yeah. Thomas Manton. Yeah. He, yeah. And if you look at the, the series that you have in the, like, I brought up one of the volumes. I think I brought up the three volumes of Manton a few, few weeks ago. And yeah, you just find that he does series on chapters. Um, yeah. Or he did do the whole book of Jude. He did all, you can buy a, <laughs> you can buy the book of Jude and you can read his whole commentary on Jude. I, I, he must have chosen Jude because he's like, I got to finish one book. I've got to finish one book at least. So that's kind of the paradox of the Puritans in some ways, right? Because they, they say they're so committed to preaching through the text, but they're so committed to preaching it carefully that sometimes you don't get through the whole text. Sometimes you end up getting pieces of the text. Um, Let's see. Um, Thomas Manton preached a whole series on Psalm 119. You guys know Psalm 19. It's a big psalm. Uh, and it's three volumes. So you can buy three hardcover books of Manton preaching on Psalm 119. Again, glorious, glorious, rich. He's not making anything up. He's finding it all in God's word. But, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that they would do, though. You would do a series on a chapter instead of on a whole book. Uh, the Puritans enjoyed preaching so much, they often removed preaching from the worship. I mentioned this. They would do this during the week. Sunday afternoon, weekday mornings were a favorite time. And, um, but before we go, I want to spend about 10 minutes just giving you a sample from somebody. This is Richard Sibbs. This is one of his volumes. Um, it's weird. I had some, uh, some Richard Sibbs books. And I was missing the first volume. And when I, when I got here, the first volume was in the church library. So it was like, the Lord's like, here you go. You gotta f- I have a completionist heart, Providence. you know. Oh, what's that? Providence. Yeah, Providence. We already talked about this. I was missing something. This church had that something. Now I've got it and I'm done. Just kidding. Um, but so the, the, anyway, this is from, this is the works of Richard Sibbs. And he has a, um, a, a sermon that he preached. Actually, it was a pair of sermons that he would preach on the bruised reed. So have any, have any of you read the bruised reed? 
a few of you. One, two, three, four, five. All right, we've got some. Um, the Bruised Read is a very precious book. It is especially timely if you are ever feeling brokenhearted over your sin. It is just the kind of book that you read if you're brokenhearted over your sin. But you know, it's also a good book if you are hard-hearted over your sin. It's a good one to read also, which means that there's never a bad time to read the Bruised Read. Um, Richard Sibbs was an English minister. He was born in 1577. Remember that when I mentioned the golden age of Puritan preaching. He's born in 1577 during the golden age. Uh, about 10 years into Elizabeth's reign, he lives till 1635. So he doesn't live long enough to see uh, Parliament execute Charles I. So he lives during a very peaceful period in English history. Um, he came from a humble family, but he attended Cambridge where he was a student of one of the most famous Puritan preachers, William Perkins. And basically, William Perkins just took uh, – oftentimes – this is literally true – uh, he would oftentimes take books from writers on the continent and just republish them as, as his book. Um, I'm pretty sure The Art of Prophesying was a book that was written by um, – I need someone to remind me. Who was Calvin's predecessor, the guy that came after Calvin? Um, uh, 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 Beza, thank you. It was a book by the- Theodore Beza. He just reprinted it basically, his book Art of Prophesying. Um, you know, They didn't have copyright issues back then. He was a preacher at Trinity Church in Cambridge. He was popular. The church grew during his time there. They had to build a gallery so that they could accommodate the visitors. Um, John Cotton, if you know that name, John Cotton was uh, one of those who came to America in the Massachusetts Bay Colonies. Um, John Cotton and Hugh Peters were con- converted under Sibs's preaching. So, you know, he's, he's ministering to people who end up leading, you know, in many ways, the American church. Um, He really exemplified the plain style that the Puritans were known for. He had a nickname. His nickname was the Heavenly Dr. Sibs um, because I hopefully he didn't choose choose that nickname. Um, I don't think he did. (laughs) I'm still working on the nickname. I want you all to call me. I will let you know later. It'll be really good, but I haven't got it figured out yet. Um, uh, and they called him Dr. Sibs because he was very learned, but they called him heavenly because he was very warm-hearted. He was very warm-hearted. He was an expert in what the Puritans called soul care. Soul care. Um, Sibs was single all his life, um, but he had a network of ministerial friendships. At one point, he said, godly friends are walking sermons. Um, and he knew many godly friends. He was a pastor of pastors. He was influenced on he was, he was an influence on all three of the parties in England at the time, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, and the Independents. Everybody seemed to like Richard Sibbs. Um, it doesn't mean he didn't have any controversy, but he was very well-beloved on all sides. Uh, a grace-filled, Christ-centered, experiential preacher. When we say experiential, we mean that this is supposed to mean something to you. This is not something that just I – mean, he's not here just to fill your head and to make you an, a Bible expert. He's here to make you a worshiper. That's what he's aiming at. Um, he once said this. He said, to preach is to woo. The main scope of all preaching is to allure us to the entertainment of Christ's mild, safe, wise, victorious government. It sort of gives you an idea of what he thought the task of preaching was and what he was aiming at. Um, his last sermons that he preached uh, were a week before his death. Notice I said sermons. He was still preaching right up until he dies, multiple sermons. 
And he preached on that text from John 14 where he says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, Really, can you think of a better passage to preach while you're approaching death than than that? Uh, One person wrote a poem about Richard Sibbs. He said, uh, of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. So um, only, this is going to sound like really shortchanging it, but um, I'm choosing uh, a sermon by Sibs just to, to, to mention to you here in a few moments because I think he exemplified what Puritanism was and I think he exemplified this before the outbreak of the English war, the English Civil War. So he really shows us what Puritanism looked like and it's best at its best, I think. Um, today we have this book, The Bruised Reed. I don't have a Puritan paperback version. I think I did, but I must have lent it out to somebody. Maybe not here. It's probably floating around Mississippi somewhere. I hope it's still floating around. But um, uh, we don't know when he preached it. He preached it on this text, Matthew twelve twenty: A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth judgment unto victory. And in the sermon, Sid starts by acknowledging that even though These verses speak of Jesus. They originally came from Isaiah, speaking of Jesus. And so he's going back to the prophecy in Isaiah, and he's saying these words were a prediction and a description of the office of Jesus. So he's setting our eyes on Christ, and he's saying the Old Testament prophets are setting our eyes on Christ. And then second, he says that these promises are an assurance that Jesus is going to execute that office, that Jesus is going to do all the things that he was promised to do. Um, he sees this as a passage about reassuring shaken and struggling saints. A bruised reed he will not break. And so he asks the question, he breaks, the, breaks it into three, three pieces. First, he talks about the bruised reed. Then he talks about the smoking flax. And then he, at the, on his third point, he focuses on this phrase, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in part one, he talks about the bruised reed. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. And Sibs draws out this point that God's people are a bruised people. We are bruised reeds. Um, We are weak and frail by nature. Um, We are the reeds. We are the reeds that he's talking about. And he says we're bruised. He says we suffer miseries in this life. We have sufferings in this life. We're surrounded by sufferings, the sort of things that tried to highlight in the sermon this morning, actually, that we live in a very fallen creation. We are bruised. And so he says in the sermon, he says, if we come to Jesus in our hurt and in our needs, he will not break us. He's not going to hurt us further. Uh, Instead, when we come to Jesus, he is a healing savior. Um, And the reason is because he was bruised for our transgressions. So, you know, just as the passage says a bruised reed, he will not break. He goes back to Isaiah and he says he already told us in his word that he was the one who is bruised for our transgressions. Why would he be bruised for us? And then re-bruise us. Why would he bruise us further? Why would he hurt us further? Jesus was bruised so that we could be healed. And so he's just bringing out Jesus' work for us. He says, Jesus is a savior who binds up the brokenhearted. Listen to this. This is a quote from him. Physicians, though they put their patients to much pain, will not destroy their nature, but will raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will pierce and cut, but not mutilate. A mother who has a sick and self-willed child will not cast it away for this reason. And shall there be more mercy in the stream than there is in the spring? 
Shall we think there's more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the feeling of mercy in us? And then he says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. He's just really driving home the fact that yes, you feel brokenhearted, but that should not mean that you feel destroyed. He, he quotes from Isaiah 61, he binds up the brokenhearted. And so as a mother is tenderest toward the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully inclined to the weakest. Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine steadies itself upon the elm and the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. He also reminds us um, that when we go to scripture for comfort, we don't see that we don't, we don't go to see people in scripture as heroes. Instead, he says that we get the feeling when we read scripture that we are the ones who relate to the sinners in the scripture, that those are actually our friends. Those are the ones we relate to the most. When we see David sin and see him getting brokenhearted and see Nathan confronting him, we see ourselves in him, right? We don't look at, uh, we don't look at um, uh, ourselves as the heroes in the text, which I think that sounds very contemporary. That sounds like a very contemporary quote to say. Um, here's how Sib says it. He says, the heroic deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church. It is their falls and bruises that do. Right? It's their falls and bruises that comfort the church today. Why is this? Because he says a holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. He calls it a holy despair. What a, really, what a great phrase for that. It is important that we have a despair, but it be a holy despair, which means, I think that means it's a despair that doesn't say, then I have no hope. Instead, it's a despair that says, I despair of myself. I'm not going to find something good in here. I'm going to find it in Jesus. Um, he also uses this phrase. He goes in the second part to this phrase, the smoking flax. He will not quench. Now, a smoking flax is like the wick of a candle that's smoking and it's nearly out, but it's not out just yet. And so not only does he say Jesus does not put out the smoking wick, but he blows on it and he gives it life again. He says that the, the smoking wick is a Christian who's in the beginning of the Christian life and only has a little grace and feels his or her own sin. Um, this is a Christian who's in great distress because of their sin. And they, they need to know and they need to be reminded of the kindness of God. They don't need to be struck. They need to be comforted. They need to be blown upon by the gentle breeze of the spirit. Um, often when we're in distress, we don't know how to pray. And yet Romans 8, 26 reminds us that the Holy Spirit makes, uh, makes, helps us make our requests known to God. He says, broken hearts can yield but broken prayers. Um, and then he gives examples of this in scripture. He gives the example of Jonah crying out to God. This guy is at the bottom of the sea, <laughs> as low as you literally could go on the surface of the entire earth. <laughs> and he's crying out to God from this low place. You have Paul crying out, wretched man that I am. Right? He's, from a, he's, he's praying from a low place. Uh, he gives the example of Thomas, who has weak faith. And he cries out to Jesus. So he says, Jesus doesn't snuff out small sparks and faint beginnings. Instead, by the spirit, he brings life. But Sibs also gives a warning. He says, it is hardened sinners and hypocrites that Jesus deals the most, hardly, hard, the most harshly with. And so there's that, there's that Puritan coming in again and going, I'm here to speak words of grace to you. But if you're a hardened person and you're not sorry for your sin, you should get warned instead. 
So right? he's not just he's not just going, you get assurance and you get assurance and you get assurance, right? He's not Oprah with the assurance, just throwing it out to everybody. But instead he's like, there are many of you in this room that need assurance, and there are many of you that need your hand slapped. Right? You need to be woken up. Um Part three, he talks about till he sends forth judgment unto victory. You know, for, for Sibs, this text is about God establishing the rule of grace in us, the way in which Christ sets up his throne in our hearts. In other words, he's not content just to, to convert us, but he's, he he's wants to be our Lord, to use contemporary language, the way we kind of talk about lordship and whether Jesus is supposed to be Lord. And, and that's what Sibs says. He says, yeah, his plan is to establish judgment and victory in our lives and in our hearts. Um, so we have to learn to recognize human weakness. Sibs says that we need to that we need to be willing to see that there is there's something wrong with us. Um, here's what he says. He says the church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. The church is a hospital. The church is a hospital where all of us in some measure are sick. All of us in some measure have some healing that needs to happen. And so he points to the means of grace. He says, Christian, you should be listening to the word of God. Uh, Christian, you should be worshiping as often as you can. Uh, You should be looking to Jesus. And he says, you won't find the world out there pointing you to Christ. That's why you need the church so much. The church is where you're going to get pointed to Christ. And that's where your help is going to be. He says, we are only poor for this reason that we do not know our riches in Christ. He says, if our faith were but as firm as the state in, as our state in Christ is secure and glorious, what manner of men would we be? And so, uh, you know, I, thanks for letting me stay an extra few minutes and kind of talk about this. But do um, you see the gentleness of the Puritan approach to preaching, right? It's very different from the stereotype, uh, very different from the stereotype. He is very concerned about brokenhearted people and not to, he is not one of those who wants to bruise the reed further. He is not the one who wants to put out the smoking flax. In other words, the stereotypes just aren't true. Um, I have a little longer quote from Hughes Oliphant that I'm not going to read right now. I actually think that Sib speaks for himself. I think he's a good representative of the kind of healthy preaching that the Puritans, you could imagine why somebody would want that multiple times a week, right? Um, you could imagine why somebody would say, you know, just once a week is not enough for me. I need more of this. And so that's why they, they met a lot, and they wanted to hear from God an awful lot. Next week, we're going to start doing something a little more constructive and a little less historically focused. We've been very focused on historical approach to, to worship, but next week, we're going to actually start talking about issues of worship. We're going to start talking about how we work through the questions that the church has been working through for most of its existence, which is how do we worship God How do we hear from God's word? How we're supposed to worship? What are the things we should do? What are the things we shouldn't do? What are the areas where we have freedom? And so we're going to start getting into the specifics now. I originally thought of starting off this series that way, but I actually decided, you know what, it's it's better for us to talk about how complex it's been and how the history of all of these things have not been simple and then bring us up to this moment so that you have the background as we talk about it. So I'm going to pray for us. Thanks for letting me stay an extra five minutes and go a little long. Uh, The kids sound like they're doing okay out there. I don't hear anything too terrible happening, but let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us gracious gracious people, that even though we are very, very concerned to have right understandings of you and who you are, I pray that we would never be 
uh, those who break bruised reeds, that we would never be those who put out smoking flaxes, that we would be people who are gentle toward the person who is hurting, that we would be people who bind up and heal and point others to the Savior who was bruised for us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.